Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would now conform us more and more to Jesus, your dear son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. To learn a craft or a skill, we often imitate others who are better at those things than we are. In junior high school, when I was trying to learn guitar and I was into that, I would sometimes hit the cassette tape and have to rewind. Some of you are wondering, what is that? Or I would take the needle and pull it, put it back on the record as I was trying to follow note for note. If only we had YouTube then. <laughs> I shared in the old church email this week about my one-year-old uh, grandson, Leonard, little Lenny, and he was sitting with his dad, my son Miles, who's uh, a carpenter and a builder and construction work and all those things, and he was redesigning his kitchen, and he had his son there on the floor with him, and as Miles had tools strewn across the floor, little Lenny was, was holding on to some of the tools uh, under the supervision of his dad. And I shared with you that if Lenny grows up to be a carpenter or somebody who's skilled with tools, it will be like father, like son, not so much like father or like grandson, like son. Uh, and I shared this with my family. I, I sent the email out, and, and my son Miles misunderstood. I think he thought I was sending it for like them to edit. And, and, and he wrote, he added to, to it, and if you know my son, you will know this sense of humor in this, had my first dad moment a couple of weeks ago and almost cut off his finger with one of those tools around there. He said, feel free to throw that in the email too. And I said, I already sent it. And then his wife sent a question mark and a squiggly face emoji and then she wrote, I'm glad I was not home. So that was the family conversation. Now, as we strive to imitate God, I just want to let you know, he will never harm us, not even accidentally. Seriously, he has made you his son or daughter through Jesus Christ. And the basic point of Peter is now live as such, live as his children. Our passage begins, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, what is the therefore? What leads into this? Well, it's what we've seen in our first few weeks through 1 Peter. It is the salvation from sin and death and salvation unto God and holiness that God has brought about sheerly because of His grace. And because God has acted definitively and so lovingly to make us his people, this means that we are now in a new relationship with him and we live out that newness. Dear friends, we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation, to our right relationship with God. It is all God's action. As Ephesians 2 said, it's 100% a gift of grace not something that we have earned. And he who acted now calls us to action, to walk in the power of his spirit, to walk in newness of life. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. And the word there is literally gird up the loins of your mind. Now this is a, maybe an odd image for us in, in the modern world, 
But in the ancient world, men often would wear flowing tunics. You know, you can think of maybe baggy pants circa 1995. I understand these aren't baggy. But when men want to run and they're wearing, you know, nice dress pants or a woman is wearing a dress, you, you got to sometimes scrunch it up if you're going to run. And this is that image. It says, get ready. Gird up, not your robes, but gird up your mind. For in a sense, this is a battle and you have to be ready. It goes on to say, being sober-minded, this is the way you are to live. Now, this is telling us that we mustn't lose our spiritual concentration through mental intoxication. We mustn't lose our spiritual concentration through mental intoxication, and yet that's so easy. See, some Christians need to be more careful and moderate and infrequent with alcohol. That's part of what this is referring to when it says be sober-minded, but it's so much more than that. Others need to be more careful and moderate and infrequent about their time on social media or YouTube or other mind-numbing distractions. The Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft has said, postmodern people are perpetually restless. Friends, that in many ways describes us. They frequently seek solace in diversion instead of satisfaction in truth. And so this is saying, be sober-minded, don't be distracted, don't be intoxicated, be satisfied in and focus on the truth. Peter says, as you are being sober-minded, as you're girding up the, your minds, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. So this is telling us that we know Christ now by faith, but we will know him then. When he returns, we will know him then by sight. Jesus will be fully disclosed to us, and who we are in him will be fully revealed, will be fully healed, will be shown and demonstrated to the cosmos as his people. And Peter is saying that that future orientation must lead you now in the present. It fuels a changed and empowered life. Hope, then, is not simply a, you know, a nice feeling, but it leads to holy living. Hope leads to holy living. So we're going to look here at three basic issues. What holiness is, how we can become holy, or pursue holiness, and why we pursue holiness. Now, these three intermingle, so this isn't necessarily a super neat um, delineation, but, but this is a helpful way, I think, to walk through it. First, what holiness is. Now, when you hear the word holy, it, it may be that a number of things go through your mind. Is it a positive word for you? Is it something that makes you want to lean into this concept and this reality. Too often with, with our backgrounds, holiness is simply rules-based. It's about do's and don'ts, and I think for some of us, mostly don'ts. As one pastor sort of lightheartedly said, well, I guess my grandmother is holy because she's too old to sin. 
<laughs> that can be the mentality sometimes. Or it's kind of this unhelpful, un, uh, or unhelpful holier-than-thou as we look at others. Now, we do, we do need to recognize that holiness is something that's actually in the culture, even though it's a secular approach to it. We can think of all the focus on food purity. You hear words around diet and nutrition about, again, purity and sometimes purging, and we have to get it right. I'm a person who gets into these things, so this speaks to me too. But it can be a kind of holiness code. One woman joked, <laughs> the woman at Whole Foods is choosing a bundle of, asp of asparagus more carefully than I chose my husband. There is a kind of holiness code, and many of them in our culture. But what does the Bible say about holiness? Well, it presents holiness as God's creative and governing power and sovereignty over the whole universe. He is utterly unique. He is holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. God is not tainted by anything immoral. He is pure goodness. As we sang earlier in Holy, 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 God is perfect in power and love and purity. And this means that His presence is so beautifully pure that it would overwhelm us if we were simply to come into His presence. It's often said that God is like the sun. We need the sun. We need it for its energy and its power and its warmth. But if you go too close to the sun, it will annihilate you. And this is why Psalm 24 asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can do that? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, how do we do that? Because we're not pure. Well, 1 Peter has told us in, in chapter 1, verse 2, that Jesus fulfills that psalm by cleansing us through the sprinkling of his blood, the holy blood of Christ. We who are unholy are reckoned and accepted and seen by God as holy. Jesus' blood, Jesus' life given up in death makes us holy. You see, God has, has consecrated us for Himself. He has set us apart for Himself, and He has lovingly taken possession of us as His people. And He wants to fulfill His holy purposes in us. And so we are brought in Christ into this new status. You belong to Jesus Christ, which means you, you are attached to your Heavenly Father who loves you. And he wants you to express that distinctive relationship with him by the way that we live. In other words, God has set you apart as holy and now you live in holiness. First Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all of your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Again, it's the idea of copying our God. 
Ephesians 5 says, therefore be imitators of God, not simply out of duty, but as beloved children. This is something we learn to love. And again, friends, this is not primarily rule-oriented. It is relational. It is positional. God has cleansed us to live a new life for Him. And it's for His glory, but also for our eternal happiness. This is how we are meant to flourish as human beings. We will be overjoyed forever when Christ appears. And our humanity will be fully and truly redeemed. And we live into that joy now. C.S. Lewis put it this way, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. We meet the real thing in our union with Christ. And so Peter says again, as obedient children, he puts it in a negative way, don't let your character be conformed to the passions or molded by your former ignorance before you knew Christ. It is so easy for us to be molded by the culture in which we live, and and it's been called by a number of people a culture of expressive individualism, where the highest good is, is to say, this is who I am as an individual. I get to define it, and I got to express that to the world. The theologian and historian, the British historian, um, Carl Truman, has said, we are in a time where millions of our neighbors believe that human beings can sculpt themselves into whatever they desire. In our culture, holiness is being true to yourself. As one writer for the New Yorker put it, the only right way to really navigate in life is to feel your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its timpani is saying, right? But sometimes that timpani is saying irritability, frustration, argumentativeness, disinterest in God and others, racism, sexism. We don't want to listen to that timpani. Peter says, don't be conformed to your former ways of thinking. You see, as believers, we don't obey our thirsts or our passion, as so many commercials would tell us to do. We don't obey those things if they're in conflict with what God has stated in his word. But rather, Peter is saying, your thought life belongs to God. Your sexuality belongs to God. Your money belongs to God. Your time belongs to God. And so true holiness is not being true to yourself, but true to the holy God who kindly redeemed you. And then, here's the paradox, then you become your true self. You are to become what God has called you to be. Paul says, or Peter rather, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile. This is a central theme in our series here through 1 Peter. 
The theme of exiles is, is obviously in the news as we see so many Ukrainians leaving their home country and going to other nearby countries. Well, Peter here is not talking about moving geographically again. He is talking about the fact that we have died to sin in our baptism with Jesus Christ. We've seen it so powerfully displayed today. We have been raised to newness of life. And so we are exiles in relationship to the world because we love Christ. And Jesus says that the world does not love him. It means that we make biblical thinking a priority and we take into account all the time our status in and relationship to Jesus. I love the way that Colossians 1 puts this language of, of transfer and, and being new people. Paul there says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's taken you from this and he has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. So in that sense, we are exiles. And friends, the exiled life, Peter is saying, equals a holy life. And we're not going to get a lot of help from the world on this. The pastor Kevin DeYoung has said, the world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness and Christ-likeness. He's right. You see, we have already seen earlier in 1 Peter 1 that, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and now Peter is saying that that hope leads to holiness. God has given us a new heart to see and to trust and to love Jesus and to want to be more like Him. This newness means that God's Word and Spirit dwell in us so that our old corrupt nature is weakened more and more and our new life is in Christ is alivened so that we desire to become more like Jesus. And so Peter is saying that though we are not perfect in actuality in our, in our living, we are in Christ, but we fall short all the time, so we still need the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, always. But it also means that the trajectory of our lives has been forever changed. And we are on a new road, wanting to become more like Jesus. Dying to our old ways that don't honor him and that hurt us. Now, someone recently shared some things with me that I think powerfully illustrates what Peter is talking about. This brother in Christ said to me in a text exchange, actually, he, he and I were interacting and I gently reminded him of some commitments that he's made in Jesus and just to, to keep on that road and that I'm rooting and praying for him. And he said this back to me, please feel free to stab me in the front on anything. <laughs> he said, that's his new phrase. I love that. He said, that's what friends and especially pastors are for. And then he said, I think the biggest enemy to being sober-minded about any vice is isolation and non-transparency. And he said, whenever these skeletons are revealed, 
It is so good to share these uh, skeletons with others. I'm encouraged to share those things with people I respect and admire. And as I do that, I'm encouraged to more control, and by that he meant self-control, not trying to control others, but self-control, and I'm inspired to sin less. I, I admit my skeletons, and I'm accountable, is what he's saying. That's a wonderful application of what Peter is saying here. Again, I'll refer to Pastor Kevin DeYoung as he mentions what it's like to become more Christ-like in our lives. He says, Jesus was gentle but never squishy. He was bold but never brash. He was pure but never prudish. He was full of mercy but not at the expense of justice. He was full of truth but not at the expense of grace. That's what we are to become. That's what holiness looks like. Well, finally, why pursue holiness? Look at verse 18 with me. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers. Now, again, there's an emptiness apart from life in Christ, which Christ rec rescued us from by his precious blood, by the spotless Lamb of God. And Peter says that God chose Jesus as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, Jesus has been revealed to us for our sake. That spotless blood was promised all throughout the Old Testament, and now it's been revealed. Hebrews 9.14 says, Christ did not enter the holy places, by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so by that blood, we have been ransomed from the futile, empty ways of the world. And Peter is saying, don't go back to those. You see, there's so many false gods in this world, good things that are made ultimate, money, sexuality, comfort, family. There are all sorts of things that get exalted as false gods, and Peter says, don't turn to those things as your God, but trust the Lord Jesus Christ and stay on that road of becoming more and more like him by the grace of God of God working in your life. I recently read a, a wonderful story, uh, a testimony of what this looked like in one man's life. His name is Stu Fullendorf, and he wrote an article for Christianity Today, and it was titled, The Booze-Filled Business Trip That Made Me a Christian. Well, he is the CEO of a group, a company that was starting to do very, very well. And he talks about the night when he and his friends were um, on the uh, exchange floor of going to Morgan Stanley there in Manhattan, and they watched the stock of their company go through the roof. And they had been drinking, celebrating, and and he was just, you know, they were like, wow, this is really incredible. We're basically millionaires uh, here. And they were standing 
in the reality of that sort of new, new change for themselves. And this is what Stu wrote. He said, I was on the verge of making a fortune, but I couldn't stop dwelling on the conversation about religion. Now, let me back up. He and his friends, his colleagues, had been in London at a conference, and it turns out that while in London, he had become a Christian, but he was a baby Christian, and he didn't really understand what he had done. And again, he and his friends went out and, and partied and, and got drunk, and they were walking in London, and they saw the apartment building. It was, it was like an office building, but it turns out that Karl Marx had done some work there. He had lived there and written some of Das Kapital there, apparently, and then his buddies started talking about Marx, and they were laughing and saying, man, we couldn't have made all this money, you know, if we follow Marx. <laughs> Um, communistic views on money. But then somebody in the group said, yeah, but Marx was right about one thing. Religion is the opiate of the masses. And people only turn to religion as a crutch. Well, this fellow Stu, remember, he had become a, a Christian. It was brand new to him. And that conversation troubled him. So again, go back to his time in New York a few weeks later. His friends were partying, and he went back to his hotel room. And this is what he said when he was in New York. He said, well, most corporate executives would feel elated about becoming overnight millionaires. I felt an overwhelming sense of melancholy and dissatisfaction. He said, my colleagues felt optimistic, but I couldn't share in their triumph. And so he was in his hotel room, and he kept feeling this temptation to go to the wet bar in the hotel, but he thought, no, i got to stay and i got to think. i got to be sober-minded. And then he said, a question reverberated deep inside, what would the world be like without Jesus Christ? Yeah, my buddies, my colleagues all said, you know, Marx was right about religion being a drug and a crutch. But Stu said, I wrestled with this, and I couldn't shake it. He said, sure, I thought the world is a broken and depraved place where wars and violence are common. Sure, there is suffering and endless heartache, but what would the world be like without Jesus Christ? And throughout this entire time, he kept feeling a pull to the wet bar, but he held back and said, I've got to stay and think. He continues, sitting in a luxurious, luxurious hotel chair in Manhattan, I reflected on the high and low points of my life. I thought especially about my quest for autonomy and self-sufficiency and how it ended up enslaving me to the pursuit of wealth and other material things. I had put all of my stock into myself, my self-sufficiency and my business acumen, and then he said, I've had this all wrong. He said, yes, the world is a broken, depraved, and violent place, but the Bible says Jesus healed people. He transformed them, and he forgave them. And then there on, uh, in his hotel, he fell on the ground, and he prayed, Jesus, I cried out. I've worshipped myself, but it's empty. I don't want to live another moment apart from you. And so I do give my life to you. Please forgive my pride and make me one of yours and adopt me into your family. 
He said after that night, he went home and his life really did begin to change. He got involved in Celebrate Recovery. He started reading the Bible and Christian books voraciously. And he said he no longer worked 80-hour weeks, but he began to devote his time to his family. You see, friends, that's one man's story, one expression of what you're hearing in 1 Peter And it speaks to your unique stories, to my story. As we learn to put our faith and our hope in God who raised Jesus from the dead, Peter says, and gave him glory. So set your minds on him. Set your hope on him. And prepare your minds for action because God is at work in you. And he loves you. And this is the beauty and the joy that God has prepared for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we hear this theme, we would not think that it's about our earning, our striving, our making ourselves into something, but it's all about what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for this story from this man who came to the end of himself, who repented of his self-sufficiency, his pride, even his talents and trusting in those, who turned away from his addictions to cry out to Jesus as his only hope, his only holiness, his only joy, and his only life. God, we pray that we would continually do the same that you would remind us that we have been baptized into Christ, that we have died to our old ways, that we have been set apart for you and for a new life, not because we're better than others, but because you have loved us so richly in Jesus. Help us to be conformed to him. Help us to walk in newness of life. Prepare our minds for action, God, because you have acted so graciously in your Son. God, as we are exiles in this world, help us not to be conformed to it, but to you and to your word. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, God, we pray that you would set apart those very common elements, bread and wine, And that as we eat and drink by faith, you would help us to feed spiritually on Jesus, who is our only holiness. And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.